0: LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Brian Check, who joins us to discuss his new book. Supply shock, economic growth at the crossroads and the steady state solution. Politicians, economists and Wall Street would have us believe that limitless economic growth is the holy grail and that there is no conflict between growing the economy and protecting the environment. Supply shock debunks these widely accepted myths and demonstrates that we are in fact navigating the end of the era of economic growth and that the only sustainable alternative is the development of a steady state economy. Czech presents a compelling alternative to growth based on keen scientific, economic and political insights. These include the trophic theory of money, the overlooked source of technological progress that prevents us from reconciling growth and environmental protection, and bold yet practical policies for establishing a steady state economy. Supply shock leaves no doubt That the biggest idea of the 20th century, economic growth, has become the biggest problem of the 21st. Hello and welcome, Brian, and thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Thank you, Greg. Now, today, Brian, we're going to discuss uh, your latest book, which is called Supply Shock. But um, perhaps before we do that, just for those who uh, don't know, it's worth mentioning that you're the founder of the Center for the Advancement of the Steady-State Economy. And this is the leading organization promoting the transition from unsustainable growth to a new economic paradigm. So before we get into the details of the book, perhaps you could just lay out, for those who are new to this, a few of the core concepts behind the idea.
1: Well, uh, the steady-state economy, I think, is best understood by uh, starting with reminding ourselves of what economic growth is. Economic growth is simply increasing production and consumption of goods and services in the aggregate. Uh, that's a key phrase I think that people tend to forget sometimes in the aggregate. So it's not just uh, uh, the growth of the solar panel sector here while the oil sector is declining there. You know, that might or might not be part of a growing economy. But the main thing in, in economic growth is that you have increasing production and consumption of goods and services in the aggregate. And so that entails increasing population and or per capita production and consumption. Uh, and all of this is indicated by a growing GDP or gross domestic product. So that's economic growth. And uh, we've studied this uh, Studied this to death in ecological economics. We know it's it is not sustainable, uh, and the sustainable alternative then is the uh, the steady state economy. Uh, actually, when you think about what the alternatives to growth are, there are but two basic alternatives. Uh, one is degrowth, and of course, in the long run, that's not sustainable either. So that leaves one other option which is a stabilized or steady state economy and uh, based on our definition of economic growth well then a steady state economy is stabilized or or mildly fluctuating production and consumption of goods and services in the aggregate and so that entails a stabilized population and levels of per capita consumption And all else equal, it's it's, uh, indicated by stabilized GDP.
0: And yet, Brian, by far the dominant paradigm in the world today, particularly industrialized West, is pro-growth, that only continuing, expanding economic growth is best for the well-being of all of us. And even in the wake of the financial crash of um, 07-08, we've seen uh, contraction of economic growth. All we get now from economists, politicians... And business people, by and large, has got to get back to growth. It's still the dominant paradigm, despite all the warning signals and all the evidence coming in to the contrary.
1: Yeah, it seems crazy, doesn't it? It, For people with with, uh, backgrounds in ecology or natural resources or just the countryside you know, this is a really crazy sort of approach to financial and fiscal crisis is constantly pulling out all the stops for even more growth uh, with desperate measures, you know, like keystone pipelines. But I, the only thing that I can, uh, the only way it can be explained is that economics is a profession that has come unrooted from the land. And the, the, Practitioners of economics in, say, in government service and also in, on, in uh, corporate service, uh, they are immersed and uh, uh, thoroughly subjected in their education to a paradigm that uh, ignores land as a factor of production. To them, the basic production function is sort of central to their thinking, which is production is a function of capital and labor and land was sort of left in the dust of the of classical economics of the 19th century and and it's a been a horrible development for economics to the degree that it's supposed to reflect reality
0: because once you factor land it might seem strange to some people coming to this for the first time that that is actually excluded but once you factor land back into economic equations it really is a game changer and you explain in the book a quite insidious and very calculating way in which land was um in the early 20th century was, was removed from these calculations
1: yeah that's right uh this is a, a a very overlooked episode in the corruption of economics those of us who who look at the production function you see in a basic micro or macro textbook this production is a function of capital and labor we We've wondered about this for, for years, for decades, I suppose. What happened to land in that production function? You know, I I think the answer can be found, and this is what I explain in in uh, Chapter 3 of the book Supply Shock here. I think it can be explained by the political backlash against Henry George, who, who wrote the book Progress and Poverty, published in 1878. And this was a huge book and movement at the time. He proposed a, a what he what they called the single tax on land. In other words, only land rents would be taxed. Well, no capital uh, uh, and uh, no wage taxes. Uh, this would have been a, a revolutionary approach to the tax code compared to what we ended up getting. In a sense, what what Henry George was to the land baron of the late 19th century is akin to what Karl Marx was to the capitalist. And so this movement for a single tax on land really threatened the big land barons of the United States, especially and uh, where George operated primarily. And uh, so this backlash against george manifested in the establishment of economics departments in the united states and by the way uh this is all very well documented by an economic historian and economist uh mason gaffney who wrote the book the corruption of economics what what i got out of it and put into supply shock is the uh, implications of that backlash and that corruption of of the development of neoclassical economics uh, the implications of that to the production function and this landless economic growth theory that uh, really uh, damages us today
0: now it's interesting that in some economic reform circles The issue of a land tax is coming up today, and it is certainly timely. And also the idea of um, taxing uh, consumption rather than earnings, trying to sort of uh, turn the tables a little bit and change the emphasis on on how we organize the system.
1: Well, that's right. And uh, by the way, I don't want to make it sound like like a single tax on land would be a silver bullet or anything for sustainability, It certainly would have some advantages and also some disadvantages Uh, it would really drive landowners to produce uh, on their land. It would end the speculation in land markets. Uh, But you see, the the real key point here, I think, in terms of uh, us understanding why neoclassical econ is so uh, unrooted, uh, not of this earth, as I call the chapter in the book, is that uh, the backlash against George resulted ultimately in this landless production function. And it's that paradigm that creates this uh, ignorance of land. Now, the, the tax on land, uh, just cover that a little bit more. Yeah, you do see a, a lot of uh, followers of Henry George, the Georgists, as it were, that that continue to push tax on the full land rents, in other words, any advantage that a, a landowner would have by owning that property would be removed, any any uh, financial advantage to that would be gone. It's virtually like socializing land, uh, except that people would still have title to tracts of land. But once again, I, that does have a lot of advantages in terms of social justice and would solve a lot of problems when it comes to however the establishment of a steady state economy that would not be a panacea it, it probably would uh, be roughly neutral in terms of uh, assisting in the establishment of a steady state
0: and we have a situation here and you just brought to mind by what you just said in the city where I live a very beautiful place but there are certain sections of the city centre which are owned by a big UK company called land securities and they've owned this for years, and years, I mean decades, and it's undeveloped and it looks really bad. And they applied at various stages to develop it in a certain way that they wanted to commercially. And the city wouldn't give them permission to do it their way. So they basically raised the middle finger and saying, fine, we'll, we'll just let this sit here and rot.
1: Yeah, well, the middle finger would sure drop if if uh,
0: there had been the Georgia tax on land rents. <laughs> now, you... Um, we're talking about economics. There is, even amongst some so-called experts, uh, ignorance about the, some, some of the actual genuine fundamentals, but certainly the public ignorance about economics is widespread. And I, I suppose it's not pitched to us as an, as an interesting thing or something that we should take interest in. In fact, because it's so detached from reality, it seems very esoteric to us. I mean, I was taught, for example, I did economics at, at high school, and I was taught that a world of unlimited wants, unlimited goods, unlimited services was not only possible, but it was desirable.
1: Yeah, well, that's, uh, I think that's a fairly common experience in the curricula in high school and college and universities. And, and that really does uh, redound to that, that landless production function, that landless paradigm. Eco- that's one of the very reasons that this ecological economics movement got rolling in the latter decades of the 20th century is it was, uh, based on the recognition that that neoclassical econ had really gone astray, uh, and was at this point in history with, uh, as I call this point in history, supply shock in the aggregate, in the macroeconomic sense, you know, with supply curves moving inward rapidly left and right. This is not the time for a landless production function and trying to, uh, You know, just squeeze every every bit possible out of the earth to uh, feed this uh, the capital requirements for growth.
0: There's also the jaw dropping revelation in your book that in some cases, economics became detached from physical reality in order that economists could simplify their equations and kind of make them work, which is just insane.
1: Well, you know, when I started exploring, investigating what happened to the production function, I remember an economist in in an audience that I was speaking to at a university. She offered as an alternative explanation the fact that, yes, in a a textbook, for example, where you're trying to display to the student how the production function works – uh, you, with a two-factor production function such as labor and capital, can simply graph that on an x and y axis, and then uh, have sort of a, a pseudo three-dimensional third axis uh, showing out that jutting out that that then gives you uh, sort of the conical expression, if you can uh, imagine that, of a growing economy. Based partly on on additional capital inputs partly on additional labor inputs uh, but you cannot take on a, another factor of production that would make it three dimensional which you can't express in a textbook so I I don't know I I reject that explanation on the grounds that it's always labor and capital that are the two left standing the two that are used, if if, there, if neoclassical economics was rooted in reality and in the natural sciences, why then you would have several chapters that would with the different uh, combinations of the factors of production and you know the, the different graphs and, and as well as the lengthy discussion of all three of the basic factors and the various uh,
0: you know tangents to them. Now, it's one thing to come to terms with the idea that endless economic growth uh, needs to come to an end. But another wrinkle in this is that it can't be steady or sustainable from this point we are now. There does need to be some economic contraction. And you point out in an early chapter of the book, a lot of the systems that sustain society, particularly industrial society, I mean, water, quality of the soil, the food chain, oil production energy in general is a lot of these areas are in crisis and this is telling us something about you know the perpetual growth model but the idea of economic contraction even relatively modest to to try and get to a sustainable point that's a, a very tough sell uh, mm. when you appreciate the fact that politicians can't even contemplate the end of uh, endless economic growth never mind talk about sustainability
1: and uh, at cassie that's the that's how we pronounce our acronym for Center for the Advancement of the Steady State Economy. It's sort of of a motto in the background that we have is one paradigm shift at a time, Uh, because you're right, it's a a tough enough sell to pitch the conscious, conscientious and, and intentional stabilization of GDP and the size of the economy, much less to slam it from slam the gears from forward to reverse on a dime and and start intentionally contracting the size of the economy. And and, and furthermore, in the long run, it is the steady state economy that's the only really sustainable option uh, for maintaining a human economic system. So, you know, we recognize at Cassian, we're very much... Uh, collaborating with the degrowth movement, uh, which you probably know about is uh, more than I do in Europe. La decroissance, they they call it, I guess, in France, pardon my bad French. But, uh, you know, I've been to some of their conferences, and they're very much on board with, with what we're doing with our position on economic growth that recognizes that there's a limit to growth, there's a a fundamental conflict between growth and environmental protection, and that the onus at this point in history is really on the, the wealthiest countries to commence, ratcheting down their growth rates, and then ultimately, probably, yes, uh, going through some contraction so that other really, truly poverty-stricken countries that truly do need economic growth for a decent standard of living, uh, will have the capacity considered in the global context to do so.
0: One of my pet peeves, something that uh, I take great issue with, is in the, the the black magic of the money markets. I mean, all the sort of speculation that goes on there, but particularly with derivatives. And derivatives are bad enough, but when they're resource-based, this, it seems to me, causes incredible distortions in price and uh, this really affects these markets. Now some claim, you know, the idea of futures, I can see how useful that could be, but derivatives in themselves do seem to be of a terribly insidious effect overall.
1: Yeah, well, they they create this illusion that there is no limit to growth because you can if if you're uh, into that sector be making money with seemingly nothing happening except you know, uh, new calculations and, and new uh, winnings in your gamblings, if, if you will. It's like being in a casino. But it, it is an illusion if you're thinking that everyone in that casino is going to be making more and more money. The winners in derivatives uh, are countered by losers in other derivatives and other uh, money markets. And meanwhile, Greg, you know, this it just doesn't reflect at all what's going on in the real world of the earth and the agricultural and extractive sectors that are the foundation of the real economy. By real economy, you know, we have to remember there is a uh, something in in our neoclassical textbooks that is at once, Profound and at once also recognized in ecological economics as uh, horribly insufficient. And that's called the circular flow of money. Remember that thing? It's, you know, you've got the real the flow of real goods and services going in one direction in a circle. In the most basic diagram, you see it flowing between the firms and the households, you know, showing your capital and labor. And in the other direction, you've got the, the money flowing for the acquisition of these uh, goods and services, producer and consumer goods and services. This is a real profound diagram in the sense that it's, you bet, that monetary sector has to and does ultimately reflect the real sector. But when you start having crazy uh, games with uh, in the money markets with the derivatives and so forth, that money supply the money uh the circular flow of money begins to expand outward and outward and it's uh it's as if it is leaving planet earth and that's exactly what it is doing and then it can't that can't be sustained and it bursts and it if you will comes back down to earth and so uh that's pretty much explains in a nutshell what what's happened uh, with recent financial and fiscal crises,
0: have you looked at the the issue of high frequency trading? This is basically where computer software is used to trade stocks and they can make buying and sell decisions in you know milliseconds because I was listening to something on this yesterday, and it seems that 's another sort of piece of evidence for how, how detached from reality uh, economics and, and money markets have become.
1: These methods, computer-based methods to uh, be able to capitalize, if you will, instantly on a shift uh, in prices and so forth, why I guess you can kind of envision that as a lot of roughly analogous to sunspot activity on the surface of that circular flow of money. Uh, It's all kinds of little disturbances, but once again, it's got no reflection of What's truly happening, it's certainly not in a macroeconomic way now. It doesn't have the level of activity, the number of times the numbers get crunched and transactions occur with this computerized stock buying and selling. That in no way reflects the amount of real economic activity. I hope everybody can see right through that. So if people are pitching that as some way to continuously grow the economy and, and make more and more money without using more and more
0: resources, while they're going to be sorely disappointed. Now, the politicization of economics is a major problem. And in America, particularly, not so much in Europe, but in America, the issue of corporate funding of politics, quite often by the back door, it has a major, major effect on how the system runs. And of course, we have to but economics also has emotion involved in it. And when you put that all together it really creates a very distorted result.
1: Yeah, well, that's for sure. And, you know, that's why the, once again, we go back to the wisdom of the classical economists of the 19th century. You know, before there was a field of study called economics, those classical economists referred to their their area of study as political economy, uh, demonstrating in one swift phrase the inextricable nature of politics and economics and you know you can see this when you when you look at the very definitions of the basic conventional definitions of economics and politics they're virtually synonymous except that the with the definition of economics you know it doesn't really put the emphasis on the social aspects of the allocation and distribution, the allocation of the means of production and the distribution of wealth. Whereas in politics, the basic definition is who gets what, when and and how. So these are inextricable systems. uh, And so, of course, politics plays a a major role in economic affairs and, and vice versa.
0: Now, what a lot of people don't take into account, perhaps because they don't realize it, because they're not being told this by the media or by their mainstream politicians, is that GDP, gross domestic product, includes lots of bad things. It's basically just a crude measure of economic activity. So say, for example, you have a a bird flu epidemic, uh, then all the vaccines to treat sick people, all the ambulance journeys, all of that will increase GDP, but could hardly be claimed to be a good thing and of course the gdp figures are manipulated uh, to some extent anyway and they're really of limited use there was that famous quote you're probably aware of from bobby kennedy who basically said that you know summed up by saying that gdp really doesn't measure anything that genuinely contributes to human well-being or happiness
1: i i think we have to be a little bit careful on this subject because it's true that uh for example if you're spending money on uh, in the hospital, it's a negative experience for the patient to be there. But, of course, if there is a cure provided or, a, you know, that that is a good thing. There's no doubt about that. So in GDP, there is a real mix of good and bad things that are all crunched up in the, into the big number. But. I think the real use of GDP for our purposes in this subject of sustainability and moving away from unsustainable growth to a sustainable, steady state economy is is pretty easy to grasp. It, It is that GDP cannot continuously grow. It has got to stabilize at some point. You know, there are some in the ecological economics movement, good friends of mine and colleagues that would prefer to simply eliminate GDP entirely to, you know, on the grounds that, well, then you would take away the focus of continuously trying to grow that thing and, and therefore growing the real economy. Uh, but on the other hand, I, I feel that uh, GDP is it's in there for good, certainly for a long time to come But let's start interpreting it differently. It's sort of like, oh, I like to use the metaphor of of the obese patient. If you're a doctor, you've got an obese patient. That patient needs to stop gaining weight. The last thing you're going to tell that patient to do is to throw away the scale. In fact, at this point, that patient needs the scale more than, than he or she ever has. They need to monitor that weight very closely. So when we've got a 70-some trillion dollar global GDP and we know that a sustainable global GDP is, is probably closer to 40-some trillion, why, we better keep measuring it and but interpreting the results with more and more alarm. And meanwhile, we've got to start using a, a blood pressure cuff and a stethoscope in addition to the scale to get other – measures of, of this patient's health so that we can, you know, assess when we're doing the right and wrong things for the big patient, you know, the economy, the people of the nation, the people of the planet. So things like the uh, the gen, uh, Genuine Progress Indicator, GPI, uh, the Human Development Index, the Index of Sustainable Economic Welfare, these other indices that we have to incorporate for a more holistic picture of of the patient's health
0: you also get into the issue of green growth so-called which is kind of an oxymoron and most public facing corporations these days have got some kind of green policy perhaps a you know a green department green officer green page on their website and I was on the website of mall of America the other day and I was looking at their green credentials and the main thing they were talking about was the sheer volume of stuff they were recycling and that this actually was c- contributing to their green credentials. But the logic there is basically that the more stuff is consumed at Mall of America, the more recycling they can do, therefore the greener they are.
1: <laughs> well, that brings up a whole other dimension of green, sort of like uh, uh, gagging green. It's, uh, that's embarrassing that uh, we would have places like that in this country or anywhere that would be uh, trying to pull the wool over our eyes that, that, uh,
0: ridiculously technical development and innovation is an important aspect of growth uh, but there is been evidence now for some time that the rate and number of new innovations is declining you know the everyday perception is that technology continues to advance and more technological wonders are coming along every day but really there's i think we have a misplaced faith in the ability of technology to solve every problem and particularly to facilitate never-ending growth that's for
1: sure, and you
0: know this. I think is the the thing that
1: I probably emphasize the most in supply shock. This is this is a really thorny issue. It's the technically it's the single most complex issue that we have to deal with in in sustainability and in steady state economics and in ecological economics versus uh, neoclassical econ. I should maybe take a quick uh, uh, relevant diversion here and and just point out in case people are haven't heard all these terms in the past. uh, Ecological economics is the primary mm, ecologically informed alternative to conventional or neoclassical economics. Steady state economics is simply the macroeconomic arm or the macroeconomic emphasis of ecological economics. So those two uh, practices and studies are are totally consistent with each other. Now, going back to the, the issue of technological progress, what has long been overlooked in the, uh, the studies and, and the conferences and the policies pertaining to science and technology is – where the technology, where the technological progress really comes from. Uh, It's not like manna from heaven, like it used to be talked about in earlier uh, neoclassical growth models. And it's it's also not adequately uh, explained in our state-of-the-art conventional or neoclassical growth models either. Uh, What gets overlooked is that it took a tremendous amount of resources to conduct the research and development to begin with. Uh, More importantly, you had to have economic surplus in order to conduct the research and development to get the technological progress. So in other words, after you paid off all the factors of production, the rents, the the, uh, the wages, the interest, and, and so on, only what you have left over, and that's after you've had your, your, your corporate banquets and your vacations and, and so forth as well, what you have left after all of that can be spent on R&D to generate technological progress, which then raises the bar for even more economic growth, theoretically, for some period of time. The problem is, where does that money really come from? Well, that's where you get in trouble with the landless production function because you fail to recognize that the money itself, the amount of real money, which reflects, as we talked about earlier, that circular flow of money, real money, meaning not inflated, solid real money does reflect the amount of real economic activity occurring out there and that real economic activity is founded upon the agricultural and extractive sectors that's the foundation of the economy and to have economic surplus to spend on uh, a growing surplus to spend on more r d to get more technological progress for more economic growth you have to have an expanding agricultural and extractive presence on the land and that's an expanding ecological footprint and that is what is unsustainable.
0: Now since the advent of the internet there's been a growing trend towards sharing information a lot of it was quote-unquote illegal open source software this does seem to me to be sort of the wave of the future so to speak and the problem for economic growthists in all of that is that the copyright and ownership of ideas is a very important aspect of you know, economic corporate activity and therefore growth. And this might seem perhaps like a side issue, but the reason I think it's important to consider is because in facing some of the ecological problems that we have on the planet, open source kind of work, sharing ideas, making technology available wherever it's needed, not wherever it can be afforded, is actually quite important consideration.
1: Yeah, I agree. Uh, it's it's a bit of a conundrum. This issue of whether to protect the the so-called rights of people to their intellectual people and firms to their intellectual property, uh, and in under the old paradigm, the the growth obsessed paradigm, you did that so that firms would have the incentive to invest in in research and development. But uh, I think that Number 1 what really again gets overlooked is whether it's open source or privatized or protected by patent or whatever doesn't really that part doesn't matter as much as the fact that you have to have more and more surplus at the agro extractive base to get more and more research and development and that, that is just what is not sustainable. The issue about patenting, whether or not to do that, whether to have copyright versus copyleft kinds of systems, that, I think, is more about economic justice and, and fairness and distribution of wealth uh, than than it is about sustainability. Although, actually, that's that you may be on to something there, Greg, because it's true that you do have to have a, an equitable distribution of wealth to have a, a, a fight and chance at, at a politically viable steady state economy as well. You can't settle into a steady state if, you have, if the, the 99% is, uh, is poverty stricken while you have 1% uh, living like hogs.
0: Where we've seen some problems, malfeasance in the corporate world, um, think Enron springs to mind. One of the main issues, um, and this does affect discussions around, you know, growth and where we're headed, is the sort of lack of personal accountability quite often. I know people in Enron were jailed and what have you, but the general trend really is that lack of accountability results in corporations, which, you know, seem to have the same legal rights, you know, as, As people do in many cases they become this sort of pseudo uh, entity Um, and that in itself causes this detachment from the outcomes of actions it's quite you know common we hear we saw this in the banking crisis that people at the tops of companies would cause enormous mayhem and destruction beneath them and then basically walk away with maybe a slap on the hand but probably with their pension intact in fact there's a documentary I'd recommend for people if they haven't seen it called the called the corporation that came out in two thousand and three and it lays all of this out very clearly
1: right and uh sure, the whole too big to fail uh genre it's sort of gotten away with that this behavior is is deemed relatively acceptable as part of this obsession with economic growth, because these figures that are allowed to get away with all these shenanigans are viewed as somehow having the uh, ability more than anybody else to so-called stimulate further economic growth. That attitude itself, that opinion, that that conclusion is, is way off base because they don't. They don't have that capacity. That In fact, it's the opposite. At this point in history – not understanding supply shock, they are the last ones that are going to help us out in the real uh, sense of, of economic
0: health. Population and economic growth are intimately linked, and we have the absurd situation where endless economic growth demands endless population growth. Now, if people think that endless economic growth is actually desirable or even possible If you then say, oh, well, then demands endless population growth, that can bring people up sometimes because it's very obvious. Well, that's just absolutely impossible, nor is it desirable. So therefore, we can work backwards from that and say, okay, well, we need to do something about unchecked economic growth.
1: Yeah, you're really on to something there. And this is where you get some interesting um, sectors in the economics profession showing up because in Conventional economics, neoclassical economics—you do have this growing recognition that, well, okay, we, for many years now, have recognized that population growth is required for for economic growth. But, but wait a minute! Even despite the claims of pop economists like Julian Simon and, and so forth, we can't have perpetually growing population, can we? So. What these, what this one little sector in, in the economics profession has tried to develop or establish in principle is that, oh, wait a minute, we can have economic growth with a stabilized population. We just have perpetual growth in per capita production and consumption of goods and particularly services. Well, once again, it's just it's not at all rooted in the reality of what is required for perpetual production and consumption of goods and services. Uh, You know, you've got the land as a key, the key, the real key factor of production in the sense that it's uh, labor and capital that combine to convert, to transform natural resources on the physical space that these operations are allotted. You know, what I'm getting at there is land is, is, is a factor of production, both in the sense of it's a, it's a space. You have to have some space to, to produce and consume, right? But also, it's the natural resources from that space that you bring into the production process, beginning with the most basic ones like water and oil. You know, they they have uh, gone barking up the wrong tree. On, there's so many, there's analysis of so many trees in neoclassical econ without seeing the forest. And this is just another example of that.
0: I'm sure this would be an immensely complex calculation. But do you, does anybody have any idea what sustainability for 7 billion people would actually look like? You know, does, can everyone have a car? Can everyone have a fridge? Can everyone have air conditioning? Can everyone have a bathroom they don't share with anyone else? You know, does everyone even have a sewage system? It's just it seems impossible to envision.
1: Yes, it does. And it's uh it's it's frustrating for those of us in ecological economics because you know we're not funded to the hilt like neoclassical economics departments are. And so we we can't get around to every research topic, but to the degree that this issue is studied. It's it's studied usually uh, under the rubric or with the framework of a, a method called the ecological footprint, where you know you do uh, ascertain the amount of acreage required for a certain uh, level of of economic activity, and uh, the there is a reasonably well developed literature and and uh, art to this at at this point as and science. And uh, the indications are that, for example, as I recall, if everyone on the planet consumed as the average American consumes, it would take something like 23 planet Earths. So that's how far beyond sustainable the American consumption uh, level is. And so your question about whether or not People could have, Everybody could have those various things you listed. Nobody's got the answer to that. There certainly isn't an omniscient ecological economist, much less neoclassical economist. So we don't know that. But uh, what we do have are indicators left and right of ecological unraveling. You know, We've got a burgeoning list of threatened and endangered species in the U.S. and around the world that's a clear set. These are like canaries in a coal mine dropping left and right. Uh, If that doesn't tip us off that we're going beyond a sustainable level of economic activity, I don't know what else could.
0: Now, I mentioned earlier the issue of emotion coming into economics and kind of parallel with that, it seems to me that one of the big issues that human beings face when confronting all these issues is actually psychological. It's not so much that we couldn't change the way that we live and we could probably live better as a result but we have a psychological barrier which is wedded us to a certain a particular paradigm and as we know with human psychology it's a our brains are our <laughs> rats mazes and it's sometimes going can be very very difficult to to get a rational outcome when you factor in human emotion.
1: That's a real challenge I to the degree that that we can't uh, develop rational policies to to deal with real problems uh, that's not something that that would be limited I suppose to sustainability matters but it's a it's definitely a problem in in a lot of uh, policy issues certainly see that in the US with a number of issues uh, so I think think that to the degree we recognize that there is a lot of emotion that comes into this. And if we're if we have endeavored to advance the steady state economy as a policy goal, we do have to connect then with uh, with these emotions. And we need to point out, for example, that we're not talking about tree hugging here. You know, we're not talking about establishing a steady state economy just to stop endangering more and more species. I mean, that that's part of it, of course. But what we're really talking about is not pulling the rug out from our own kids and grandkids. And if that doesn't get to the emotions of people when they look at their own kids and their own grandkids, well, then I guess there would be not
0: much hope. And also it strikes me that if we could bring an end to or as close to an end as we can get to the cycle of boom and bust, we'd all be a lot better off because so much you know, some people win, of course, in boom times, but so many people across the board lose in bust. We saw that in the with the financial crash that you know that's ongoing actually, which I mentioned earlier. And but despite the contraction of economic growth since then, income equality is actually still on the rise. Wealth is becoming concentrated in fewer hands, and the liquidating class as you call them they're already in some parts of the world effectively paying security forces to suppress dissent against the situation. And I was reading the other day that in the U.S., anyway, luxury brands such as Porsche and Rolex are, are doing better than ever.
1: Well, that's not a good sign. Uh, yeah, this the paradigm shift to move from growth to a steady state certainly is uh, something that has to occur far and wide, not just in the policy making. Circles of the Fed and, and Congress and so forth. Yeah, you mentioned that this this term, uh, the liquidating class, because I think that there is a latent attitude of people around the world, including Americans, against such uh, raunchy kind of consumption le- levels. Uh, the Hummer driving and the McMansion building and the, you know, the fur coats and, and the Things like this, I think as more and more people begin to recognize how uh, what we were talking about before, that if everybody behaved like that, you'd really be pulling the rug out quickly from your kids and grandkids. And so now we have to recognize is that this liquidating class, they're pulling out the rug disproportionately. They're pulling out the rug from our kids and our grandkids uh, at a much faster rate than than we are. And so we have to avoid uh, a civil war here based on consumption levels. But yet we do have to nudge the behavior of the conspicuous consumer uh, downward. And in the process, you would precipitate uh, sort of a a flattening of the, the levels of consumption and where the average level would be declining, the propensity to consume would be declining. If you're a, uh, you are you want to use Keynesian economics terms, you'd say the propensity to consume is declining. And so you would have uh, a demand in the aggregate that would be more fitting with supply shock. And you could for some time until... We came into the political willpower to establish as a as a goal and as a policy the steady state economy. You could, in effect, be moving in that direction simply by lowering the propensity to consume. Well, you
0: also point out in the book that sustainability uh, humans on the earth is it's not an unprecedented state of affairs. In fact, if you look back across you know millennia, it appears to be the norm. And many indigenous societies, even today live in a sustainable fashion. And the idea of of doing this in a modern context is not unheard of. There's a lot of intentional communities trying to live in this way. It's just a question of, as I mentioned earlier, dealing with the fact that there's a hell of a lot more people now uh, than there were, you know, even a couple of hundred years ago.
1: That's right. And I think uh, what a lot of folks in the... um in ecological economics, would attribute the difference between those millennia of relatively sustainable tribal cultures to the horribly unsustainable situation we've encountered now is oil, the development of the industrial uh, fossil-fueled economy, because that is you know what has enabled us to. Extract resources in a way that was never possible under tribal cultures. It wasn't so much the, the difference between a tribal system, uh, tribal social system and these uh, modern systems of political economy. It was more uh, having to do with the levels of technology being um, employed at, at each at, at these respective periods in time. Now, of course, you know, there are those uh, who study complexity theory and so forth that would make the point, And this is this is fine. It's a fine point that you wouldn't have these highly complex governments and systems of political economy in general without that tremendous amount of energy surplus that you do have when you learn how to use fossil fuels and start burning them up. But as we liquidate these fossil fuels, you know, liquidate the stocks of coal and and petroleum, why that then points to us having to accept a gradual simplification of some of our governance and letting go of some of the, the policies and government programs. This, by the way, I'll say one last thing about this. This points to a natural connection of our movement in steady state economics with what you might consider in the U S at least what you would consider the, the right on the conservative on, on the political spectrum, you know, conservatives uh, against big and fancy government. I, I want to point out in general, in fact, that the move toward a steady state economy is, has connections all along the political spectrum. It's, Absolutely not a leftist or a rightist or a center, it's pretty much apolitical. But we do have obvious uh connections with the uh the desires and the emphases of you know political operatives all along the spectrum.
0: Um, thinking about the future and different ways of other different ways of doing things, are you familiar with? The blue economy concept uh, by Gunter Pauli, which is basically a zero waste economy, in which it would actually be could potentially do a lot for employment because it would be a lot more human labor intensive.
1: Well, I uh, certainly, as you know, having read Supply Shock, I'm certainly an an advocate of uh, the. You know, it's it's a nasty sounding phrase, I'm afraid, for a lot of people that labor intensification. But we should point out what we mean by that is putting people back to work in meaningful jobs like in the United States uh, during the Great Depression. One thing that that moved it back toward a steadier state was the establishment of the Civilian Conservation Corps, where uh, young people were hired to do really very meaningful work, uh, construction of uh, infrastructure and buildings, buildings, In places like national parks and national forests that we still see standing today and take great pride in, uh, you know, pride of workmanship, that's labor intensification. It just means uh, we we, uh, have real jobs, not flipping burgers in McDonald's as much as creating things from the natural resources that are durable and lasting in a steady state economy.
0: Okay, in closing, Brian, just to go out on a positive note, if we are to roll back from the precipice, so to speak, that we're facing across energy, environment, economy, basically you describe how we can seek a prosperous way down from this, because it's not really about giving things up, about losing things, about suffering, it's about actually finding a better and more sustainable way to live, to just make our peace with the planet, so to speak, and thinking about future generations How things can be put in place so that they can have the sort of, you know, decent lives that that many of us have enjoyed and the people who are not having decent lives right now can live better as well. And I see many positive developments out there, one of which is is certainly the rise of localism, because in my mind, anyway, economic growth is very much tied in with globalization. And we're seeing globalization in some sense is going into reverse.
1: Yes, uh, there we should go out on a positive note. And. At the same time, I don't want to be viewed and I don't want to steady state economics to be portrayed as either optimistic or pessimistic. It's a very realistic approach because it is so based in the real sectors, which then are based on the land. And uh, one positive aspect, however, of the reality is that we wouldn't have to to give up a lot to move to a great degree more sustainable in places like the United States because right now there's a lot of fat in the economy. I mean, you move around the landscape, you'll see things like uh, artificial waterfalls in Las Vegas, Nevada, uh, you know, where that just doesn't fit, and it's totally unnecessary, and Those kinds of things can be weeded out. The Hummer driving, the NASCAR racing, the, you know, going around in circles as fast as you can, using up as much oil as as, uh, that takes. And as well as the, uh, you know, the smorgasbord of chemicals that go into that whole sector. Uh, We have these things that can be weeded out with really very little impact on the health and uh, with a positive impact on the health and happiness of people at large. Uh, And when you go around the planet, you see other major pockets of these kinds of fats, if you will, that that can be dealt with first, the place, the Dubais of the world, for example. So there is a starting point to this that wouldn't have a major impact on the standard of living of the 99.9%. But I I think it's also realistic to recognize that uh, politically this does entail some really rolling up of the sleeves and and getting down to work and uh, demanding reform in fiscal and monetary policy making where we really do stop pulling out all the stops for, for GDP growth. And we start to set those levers and buttons Back toward a sustainable, steady-state
0: economy. Well, Brian, your book, once again, Supply Shock, is widely available. Uh, but perhaps you'd like to tell people about website and uh, anything else you'd like to share.
1: Oh, sure. Uh, well, so the Cassie website is is uh, www.steadystate.org, and uh, you can get Supply Shock from there, or uh, you know, you, it'll connect you to the publisher and to the Amazon and all that there. And we have a tremendous amount of resources at steadystate.org. Another book that came out in 2013, uh, Enough is Enough by Rob Dietz and Dan O'Neill. Another excellent book uh, on steady state economics. We've got links to a lot of Herman Daly's original works in steady state econ. You know, we have slideshows and and videos. And we also have a position on economic growth that people can sign. And this is uh, something that, talk about rolling up the sleeves, doing the the dirty political work to advance an issue. You know, nothing speaks to a politician uh, as much as money, (laughs) but the thing that speaks next most loudly is signatures. So that's how we can eventually mm, start making enough of an impression upon these politicians to start taking Uh, Start taking this seriously and start ratcheting back those levers and buttons.
0: Excellent. Well, Brian, thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Thank you, Greg. Well, folks, that's it for another week. As ever, thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy the show, please check out the website. That's LegalizeFreedom.com, legalize-freedom.com, where you'll find an archive of programs offering alternative views on a wide range of topics including world affairs, politics and economics, science and technology, religion and spirituality, conspiracy and alternative history. You can also browse and buy a range of books and dvds from our guests and if you're feeling generous make a donation to help keep the site up and running. Until next time I'm Greg Moffat and you've been listening to LegalizeFreedom.com.